please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 5 today as we continue a series of messages through Paul's letter, the second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Remember last time that we were in this book, a few weeks ago, Paul shows us future events in chapter 2. He spoke of the revelation of Christ at his triumphant second return. And he spoke about the rebellion of Antichrist, which will precede the second coming of Jesus. He also said that although the final outbreak of lawlessness is being restrained or held back, yet he said the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. And so his conclusion that we learned last time we were together in this book is that evil is both restrained and operative according to the Lord's timing and purposes. All things are under the Lord's sovereign hand, whether he is restraining evil or whether he is allowing it. We can always take great comfort in knowing that he is in control. And so we can ask the question, what is the responsibility of Christian people in light of these things, in light of the great eschatological truths of chapter 2? How should we behave as Christians? How should we live in view of the present tension between or the present tension and the final outcome. And Paul has, in chapter 3, a very practical word for us. In fact, throughout the chapter, he is seeking, as he wraps up the book, to tell us that he has a strong desire to see the word of God, the word of the Lord, or the gospel, spreading and effective both in the world and in the church. Both are aspects of church growth. There's nothing wrong with the concept of church growth. Churches ought to grow, so long as we remember that it has these two dimensions. As John Stott put it, God wants his church to grow both extensively by the spread of the gospel and intensively by its own obedience to the gospel. Each is incomplete and unbalanced without the other. And so proper church growth means not only that the church is growing numerically, but the church is growing spiritually. And solid doctrine is being consumed, it's being taught and preached, so that God's people grow up to the full measure and stature of Christ. And so we come to chapter 2. As we begin it this morning, we'll look at the first five verses, and we have two things. Number one, Paul's request for the Thessalonians to pray for him and his companions. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians. And we have that in verses 3 through 5. Very important that Christians pray for one another and that Christians receive encouragement. We need to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going to unfold for us in these verses. Before we go any further, let's stop and pray and ask God to bless our study. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing 
in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. And I pray that you would quiet our hearts, all of us, and that we would hear what your good Holy Spirit would teach us according to our own situation, circumstances, and needs. Lord, get all the glory. May you be blessed as your word is proclaimed today, and may we benefit from it. We give you all the thanks and praise and glory for these things, and we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and his traveling companions, those who were with him in order to dispense the gospel. And you see that in verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us. And then he gives two reasons that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. The Greek New Testament says that literally the word of the Lord should run ahead and be honored. The phrase signifies that the word should move swiftly like a runner and be glorified in the process. This imagery goes back to Psalm 147, verse 15, which says, He sends out his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Paul may also have had the Greek games in mind as well. He liked and enjoyed doing that in 1 Corinthians. And so the gospel itself would be running forward and accomplishing all the purposes of God as an athlete would run in a race. I can't help but think of Isaiah 55, which we read this morning. A portion of it, verses 10 and 11, says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return empty without accomplishing what I Desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. God's word is powerful, ladies and gentlemen. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And every time it goes forth, especially in proclaiming the elements of the gospel, the sinfulness of human beings, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, his atonement for our sins. Every time that message goes forward, hearts and lives are changed. God is moving on individuals. And we need to believe that, that the Word of God is powerful. Perhaps you know that from your own experience. Maybe you were not raised in a Christian church, but there was a time in your life where you heard the gospel. And you heard it not simply audibly, but efficaciously in your own heart. You realized, as I did when I was 18, Jesus didn't just die for sinners. Jesus died for me, personally and active. It was like a bomb going off. And that's the way the Word of God is. It is powerful. The Bible says the Lord's voice shakes the cedars of Lebanon. God's voice 
whenever we hear it in our ears and in our hearts, is huge. He says the word of the Lord goes forward, and Christians need to pray for that. We need to pray for that as Christ's church, as we seek to reach the area around us, as we seek to reach those who speak English and those who speak Spanish and perhaps other languages, that the word of God will go forward. And he says, and be honored, just as it did also with you. Paul spoke of this in the first letter to the Thessalonians, how they received Paul's message as not simply the word of man, but the word of God, as Paul would become and was an inspired writer of sacred scripture. He would later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is never bound. It always does its work whenever it goes forward. And he says that it would be honored. What it means there simply is that whenever God's worth goes forward powerfully, that individuals who are changed by it, they would be honored. They would honor the word of God. This is kind of taken from uh, Acts 13, 48, whenever Paul preached at Pisidian Antioch. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying or honoring the word of the Lord. You see, whenever God's word pricks your heart and leads you to salvation, it becomes precious to you. Isn't that true? You want to spend time in the word. You need to feed your soul daily. God's word does that. And so Paul prays for essentially the propagation of the gospel, that the message would go forward. But then notice, secondly, he prays for protection from evil men. Look at verse 2. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, wicked and evil men were going to rise up, or will rise up and tempt the church with false teachings. And so Paul prayed for the Thessalonians to stand firm, to resist in the power of God in 1 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Well, here now he's reversing that. He's saying, please pray for us. Now he asked them to pray for him and his companions that they would be delivered from perverse or wicked and evil men who have no faith. It's important to remember two things in connection to this. Uh, point to two kinds of evil. Number one, Paul wrote this letter while he was in Corinth. And you remember, Corinth had its share of problems. Probably more problems internally than any other church. There were church members professing Christians who were selfish, practiced infantile behavior. They had a party spirit. They were insecure. They practiced sexual immorality. They were suing one another, and they abused the Lord's table. And I say that to say this. Paul was aware that sometimes people can be perverse in the bosom of the body of Christ. The wheat grows with the tares. And so a part of wicked and perverse individuals is internal. And that's why the church has governing leadership. That's why we practice discipline, so that we would address those things. But also, not only that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth and his experiences in Corinth, but remember that the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica were notoriously evil. In Acts chapter 17, we learned that there was physical violence against Jason. 
And they drove Paul and Silas out of town. And if that weren't enough, they followed them to Berea, the next town. And so here we have an external example of evil and perversity. And so whether it's internal or external, the Bible makes it clear that Satan will oppose the word of God and the gospel message. And he will seek to steal away that word from your heart and life. We know from the parable of the sower and the seed that Satan is actively involved in stripping away the message before it can be received and acted upon. And so wicked and perverse people can attack the church internally or externally. And the gospel produces either faith and joy and obedience or rejection and even hostility toward God's truth. Because the gospel does not always find receptive hearts. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, please pray for us. Please pray for us as we dispense this word. Well, notice the second thing quickly. Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians. Paul's always giving. Even when he asks for prayer, he's so gracious and so good. He's always giving. And after Paul asks for prayer in verses 1 and 2, he offers a series of encouragements. And Paul's encouragement is based on his confidence in the Lord. In other words, Paul is not consumed with worry and anxiety over the Thessalonians because he knows that the Lord is in control and in charge of all that takes place in their lives. There's a great peace in that reality. When we know that the Lord is in control, it relieves anxiety. It takes away worry. And we continue to focus upon the Lord in order to do that which we request or to defer to God's will if it's different from what we request. And I want you to notice Paul offers his encouragement by outlining three specific activities of the Lord who is at work in their lives. Number one, he says to strengthen and protect them from the evil one. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. You know, in contrast to the faithless evil men in verse 2, Paul highlights the absolute faithfulness of God. He's prone to do that, to teach by contrast. Just as he contrasted Jesus and the Antichrist in chapter 2, here he contrasts faithless men in verse 2 with the faithful God that we worship in verse 3. People may be fickle, even deceitful, but the Lord is faithful. And whatever unbelievers can hurl against Christians, God always triumphs because he is faithful and unrelenting in his purposes. Lord God made a covenant between himself and us, and he sealed it with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God remains trustworthy and dependable in all of his covenant relationships. He says strengthen and protect. The word protect is really guard in the Greek, and adds an important point that God will not establish his people and leave them. He will guard them continually. There are times where the Lord doesn't feel close. Well, you may feel like you're in a pinch, and it seems like he's far from you, but that's not the case. Any more than it was in the life of Job, 
chapter after chapter, as he cried out, and as his friends gave him horrible advice, for the most part, Job felt very much alone, but we learn at the end of the book, God was always there. He was always there, stretching and developing Job's perspective of himself. Now, even though there's divine protection, it doesn't mean the absence of conflict or preservation through conflict. The Lord protects, and often he doesn't take us away from conflict and difficulty, but he protects us through it. And he gives us grace to endure, just like he did the Apostle Paul. As he said, I had a thorn in the flesh, and I prayed that the Lord would remove it. I prayed three times, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Strength is made perfect in weakness. And he says, he will strengthen and protect you from evil or the evil one. Either one of these would be a good translation. Paul is saying that God essentially will guard you from all the assaults of Satan. Now that's very encouraging. That is so encouraging. Psalm 29, 11 says, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 37, 39, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Psalm 46.1, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so Paul encourages the Thessalonians by saying God is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. I hope you're enjoying that strength and protection in Christ Jesus today. It's so peaceful. To know that we don't have the strength. We don't have the ability to protect ourselves from evil. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and we admit our dependency upon him, not only for salvation, but for daily living. The Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know what you're facing this coming week, but the Lord is good and faithful. He will strengthen you. And he will protect you to get through whatever situation you might face. Well, second thing, not only will he strengthen and protect them from the evil one, secondly, he will enable their obedience. Notice again how Paul talks about confidence in the Lord. He said in verse 3, the Lord is faithful. In verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Very reassuring words. How could Paul say this? Well, he knows that God is faithful and that God perfects that which he begins. Paul is confident that the Lord will continue to enable and motivate the Thessalonians to faithful obedience to all Paul taught. It's like he said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence rested in the Lord. He was certain that God would produce in these Christians a willingness to obey and that they would continue to respond in faith just as they had in the past. You know, the Christian life offers a challenge for us to acknowledge that God is working in our lives. 
And thus we must submit to him and cooperate with him as he enables us to do what he commands. That's what makes Christianity, one of many things, what makes Christianity different than every other world religion. We don't simply follow a bare code. We don't worship a dead religious leader or ruler. We have a dynamic relationship with the living God of this universe. As we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he takes residence in us, and we find our comfort and satisfaction and dependency on him by faith. And not only does he live inside of us, he's working inside of us. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What an encouraging word. When I feel down, when I feel like even God has abandoned me, when I go through hard times and difficulties, the Lord's word comes to me, I am in you. Continue to work out what I'm working in you. And go forward in trust and faith and believe that this relationship that was begun many years ago will continue until the very day of your death or my return. There was a prayer offered by St. Augustine. I think it's beautiful. Give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do what you will. Give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do what you will. That says it. We need grace to obey. We need to be enabled by God's Spirit to love what He loves and hate what He hates. We cannot muster up that ourselves. Our hearts are too sinful. That's why Christ saved us and why He lives inside of us by His Spirit to enable us to obey Him. God never asks us to do something. He never asks us to obey a command in which He doesn't give us the grace to do it. What a great, great truth of the Christian faith. That's why Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When you trust him, and there's full reliance upon him by faith, he gives the grace to do whatever is necessary, even in difficult circumstances. And so Paul says, first of all, to protect you from the evil one, and then to enable your obedience. And then finally, in verse 5, to direct their hearts into the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Many think this is a concluding prayer or benediction. It's really beautiful. And the construction of the Greek has some ambiguity. It could mean the love of God. It could refer to God's love for us or our love for him. And the steadfastness of Christ, Paul could mean his steadfastness for us or ours for him, remaining strong. But most scholars believe it's a combination. It's a combination. It's a prayer for the readers to show in their lives the same kind of love as God shows and the same steadfastness as Christ shows. That's what First John says. We love because he first loved us. When we think about the love of God in Christ Jesus, that leads us to love him. 
cannot muster love up on our own. And when we think about the Lord Jesus and all he put up with and all he withstood to go to the cross to die for us, that encourages us by our faith, knowing that he lives inside of us to be steadfast. As Paul would say in Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. David, for instance, prayed to the Lord for his people that the Lord would keep their hearts loyal to him. 1 Chronicles 29, 18. And conversely, King Rehoboam did evil because, quote, he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. You know, that's the summary of the gospel. God's love and Christ's perseverance. The Bible says in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To exercise faith in him. To trust him in light of his finished work on the cross as God poured out all of his wrath against human sin on Jesus, his own son, when he was on the cross. And Jesus took all the wrath of God that was meant for you and me so that we would stand perfectly righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, before a holy God and all of our sins past, present, and future would be paid for and forgiven. That will change your life. Just a couple of applications quickly. I think Paul desires for the Thessalonians to serve, for this to serve as a tremendous prayer guide. We need to pray for these things in ourselves. We need to pray for God to actively make these things real in our fellow believers. These are three great prayer requests. To strengthen and protect us from evil one. To enable our obedience. To direct our hearts in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I may also say, this is a great, great prayer or prayers for your loved ones. Especially those who are not walking with the Lord. Many of us as parents know that pain and reality. You have a son or a daughter, maybe several, who at one time when they were younger, they professed faith in Christ, but now that's not the case. Sometimes they've walked away from the faith to a lesser or greater degree. And we start to question ourselves, what did we do wrong? What could we have done better? A better thing to do is to pray these things. Lord, strengthen and protect my child from the evil one. Lord, enable their obedience, awaken them once again, and bring them back to the faith. And Lord, direct their hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great, great set of prayer requests to lay before the Lord for a wayward son, a wayward daughter, a wayward spouse, that the Lord would bring them Once again, the supreme example of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ is Calvary. And that's what we celebrate as we go to the Lord's table this morning. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And how he purchased eternal life for all who would put their faith and trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great apostle Paul and the things that he said which are your words in 
sacred scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort our hearts and remind us of your faithfulness and encourage us this morning, Lord, in our walk with you. Now as we approach the table, that, Lord, you would bless us with your presence in a real and meaningful way as we enjoy the Lord's table together. Bless us in these things, Lord, and more. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.